Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. Could be any time in your part of the world. And you'll find all of our back shows, including this one in a couple of days, at visionaries.podbean.com. So we have over 100 uh, previous shows interviewing really cool people. Uh, as we are today, and I want to talk about TED, T-E-D, which stands for TED, but it originally stood for Technology Entertainment Design. It was conceived by Richard Saul Werman, or Ricky Saul Werman, and he's sort of somebody in my life. We both went to University of Pennsylvania, and we both wrote books on Louis Kahn, and he was interested in how you can communicate graphically. And he got grants and did, you know, like, how do people navigate Philadelphia? Where, where do they think they are? And of course, if you're an architect, you think of a conventional map. But how do people really think? Maybe it's by landmarks. So he explored that. And then he said, if I'm so smart, I should be able to apply this usefully, <laughs> rather than just getting grants. And he created a series of books called Access, Travel Guides, Access LA, Access Rome, Access Paris. And they were the best travel books for quite a while, although they've been supplanted by um, really expensive, colorful travel guides. And he then um, created it's a conference. It's been meeting annually since 1990 originally in Monterey, California, now in Vancouver. And Ted was purchased by media mogul Chris Anderson in 2000. Um, they do events all over the world. And they're famous for their 18-minute presentations. You can't talk for more than 18 minutes. They're incredibly rehearsed. Uh, if somebody slips up in a recording of a TED conference uh, presentation, they start over. <laughs> uh, so some people think they're over-rehearsed. But you can get books on how to do a TED Talk. It's very expensive. It costs $10,000 to go to one plus your hotel and travel. But you might be having lunch with Bill Gates or Sergey or Larry. So uh, besides it being expensive, it sells out in about two minutes after uh, they open up selling tickets. But all of their talks are online. And not only that, um, for us people who can't make it to a real TED event, or a TED original, I guess we could call it, there's something called TEDx. And in 2010, a TEDx came to my school in Brooklyn, TEDx Brooklyn, and it was brought there by Tedji uh, Thomas, who's our guest today. So Tedji, how are you? And how did you get involved with the TEDx? Good morning, John. Glad to be with you. Um, just wanted to say welcome to the fans of the John LaBelle podcast. Um, I think for me, uh, the the journey started actually two years before. Um, 
and I was uh, a volunteer with the Obama campaign um, on the grassroots level. Um, actually worked on his Senate campaign um, here in the, the Washington, D.C. area. And um, what I did was more of an independent operator. Um, and I used kind of the arts as a mechanism to engage folks um, and see kind of what the arc would look like for someone new uh, with a funny name, um, but very charismatic and kind of captivating. And you're reminding more of, a, of an actor uh, than a politician. And um, for me, uh, I organized film gatherings around a documentary about uh, Barack Obama going to Africa. And it was a documentary that probably most people didn't see at the time. So I used that film as a way to engage people to come together. And so I've had different screenings at various locations in New York City, uh, DC, and London um, as a way to engage at least three uh, cities that I um, have uh, relationships with. And so within that period, I also was able to pull out events that focus around DJs for Obama, artists for Obama, um, and just engage people that, again, normally would not be part of the political process. Um, my last kind of final event um, before or right after the last debate was actually at Jay-Z's um, club in New York, the 4040 Club, um, to kind of uh, have it as the final push to get folks to come to that event and hopefully um, filter them out into uh, the, some of the battleground states where I knew field organizers, so in North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, and just, you know, just, you know, obviously after coming, having that excitement, the last debate was in uh, Hofstra University in Long Island. Uh, and then I, you know, after the campaign was over and, you know, obviously um, Barack Obama came, became president, I worked, on, I worked on some of the principles that I was thinking about and worked on a startup, um, which took mostly to to all of 2009 and various competition that dealt with open source technology and connecting social entrepreneurs. Um, where where in the world would some of these people be if I wanted to collaborate with them and if I didn't have that access? And so um, one of those competitions was uh, the MIT 100K challenges, and that was 23. 23 challenges um, did, didn't do well um, in terms of outcome of winning, but I learned a lot in the process. And I think the arc of taking the iteration from Barack Obama's campaign to my own campaign and failing uh, in the sense of how a startup would ultimately look as being successful, but at the same time, you know, at that time, I was, uh, you know, figuring new things of being a, a parent. So my son was um, three years old at the time, and my daughter was just born. And so uh, I read about TED, um, and I saw that there's this process to get um, a TEDx license. I was originally working with a group in D.C., but um, I didn't, um, let's see. I didn't 
for me, it was more about a, just an event. I was curious about the underpinnings of what does this mean when you bring people together? And um, I looked at the landscape uh, pointed north of New York. Um, you know, I, was, I grew up in the Bronx, and so my my ties to New York and New Jersey go go way back. That being said, I looked at the map and I saw nobody ha had done an, a TEDx event in Brooklyn. So I applied for that license um, and, um, you know, got it approved. And well, then let, me, let me interrupt and ask you a, a general question before you go forward. So some background in college, I had a, a longtime friend uh, who was just graduating college, um, different college, and he might have gone to become, you might have, he was thinking of coming to the Annenberg School of Communication at Penn, where I was, and then he didn't. I said, uh, Matthew, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to go to USC and study film. And I said, oh, so you might make documentaries? He said, no, John, you don't understand. I'm going to Hollywood and I'm going to make feature movies. And he did. And, and it's like, I didn't know you could do that. So how does a kid from the Bronx figure out that you can work on the Obama campaign, uh, book clubs, make movies, get a TEDx license? How'd you do all that? Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of it actually comes from growing up in the Bronx. Um, and then before the Bronx, uh, you know, I was born in India, specifically Kerala, lived in, in Mumbai. But there's a lot of things that I learned in the Bronx in the sense of what innovation looks like. Um, and in my own way, everything was about kind of proving yourself. But at the same time, you're in a very tough environment, um, very tough. Uh, you know, I, I lived off the Grand Concourse. My mom was a nurse at Bronx Lebanon Hospital. Uh, my father was a machinist. Uh, he was working for a company called WedTech, um, and so within that time period, um, during now the '80s, there was a revolution in terms of hip hop music was being born, um, but there was also a lot of crime, uh, violence, uh, drugs, and so every everything that we were fighting for, even for our own safety, um, just to make it. And I think the the narrative of an immigrant um, during that time is just survival every day. And then for me, um, just walking from my house, not even a house, apartment to to my school was an adventure in so many ways. Um, one of the things that I was captivated by, I didn't tell my parents this at the time, was whatever lunch money that I had, I wouldn't spend on lunch because on the way to school or on the way back to school, some of the bodegas had comic book stores, I mean, comic books. And so I would use that narrative of these great epic battles of kind of forces coming together. And I, and from there, I guess the seed was, how, how does one translate this to a, the bigger picture, the bigger, bigger universe, as they say. Um, and I, and I think that arc, traveled from the Bronx when I moved from the Bronx to uh, Bergen County, New Jersey to, to reinvent yourself. Um, so I had to 
uh, adapt to the surroundings. Um, and uh, the town is called Dumont. And, um, and I think on a lot of levels that those adaptations of understanding there's, there's yourself, there's your larger self, and then there's things that are beyond your world. And so the idea was um, making that, that connection um, to something bigger and being a part of something uh, was something that I, I strive for when I was playing competitive sports uh, in high school. So I was part of the, the soccer team, wrestling team, and I did track and field. And um, but I was also in a lot of different clubs, like the Ecology Club, the School Paper, uh, Future Business Leaders of America, and within that that framework, um, I was able to be in certain pockets of people um, and understand kind of this is how they think, this is what they feel, and I thought, uh, especially after I moved to D.C., um, this is part of the the makeup, right of uh, that connection of community and and belonging, and I think on a lot of levels, the the TED brand speaks to that, um, and it's thought leaders that come from all of these different disciplines, um, and you know, having having thought about that, and I said, what well, what would it look like to create that for myself? And you know, I was I was not living in Brooklyn at the time, um, I was living in Silver Spring, Maryland. And so I would, uh, you know, start the journey to uh, map out Brooklyn um, to find a home for TEDx. And um, and ironically enough, that connection happened uh, when I went to the Buckminster Fuller Institute conference that was taking place at American University. Um, and it was the first time I was kind of exposed to architects, designers, uh, whole systems um, thinkers. Um, and I met a woman that um, had asked, what are you working on? And, and I mentioned, yeah, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find a location to do this TEDx Brooklyn thing. Do you know anyone? Uh, and she had connected me to, to Deborah Johnson, who was at Pratt. Um, and then from there, uh, it was a conversation with uh, at the time, Peter Barna, who was the provost, um, and I pitched basically the concept. Uh, and as the saying goes, the rest is history. <laughs> cool. So, what is a TEDx, and uh, how did you actually make it work? Yeah, I, I think uh, when TED saw that there was a lot of requests from people around the world to do TED-like events, um, it it gave the opportunity for TED to license their brand um, to independent organizers around the world to create TED-like events. Um, the ownership goes to the organizers to to create it with the the vision of of TED branding. So you have certain guidelines that you follow, um, but ultimately it's up to the organizers to execute. And so. Uh, for me, I, the team that I started out with is not the team that I ended up with. Uh, it was a lot of hard work, and it was a massive undertaking. And I think at one point, um, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere because it was just me kind of p 
pushing it along where a, a lot of the other folks kind of dropped off. And, um, you know, I, I had the conversation um, um, with, with Deborah Johnson to say, this is a scenario I need to find somebody who is either a TED fellow or who attended a TED to bring it to the scale of 500 people uh, at Pratt because that was the maximum amount of uh, attendees allowed. And so that was when I was introduced to, to Bruce Gitlin, um, a wonderful man. And, you know, I said, this is my situation. Um, would you be willing to, to come on board as co-organizer with me um, to help kind of steer some of the higher level issues, but I, I would take on the bulk of the work and responsibilities to move this forward. And um, from there, we we agreed. Uh, and so that was a huge, huge relief for me. And um, I, I started to then build and activate and pull resources and individuals to say, this is where it's going to be, which is going to be at the Pratt Institute. Um, Pratt gave its blessings um, to activate the spaces uh, that I saw that made the most strategic sense uh, in creating a, a positive experience. Um, the campus of Pratt is an oasis in a lot of ways because of just, you, you know, depending on how what people know about Brooklyn, um, Pratt in itself is is just a, has a lot of rich history and the, the there's artwork uh, on the campgrounds. And I was like, I wish a lot of universities would use that kind of bare lawn space and put artwork. Um, and I found out that was, uh, you know, part of Bruce's, um, vision to, to, to create that. And I, I thought what a wonderful experience for not just people to come to the campus, but see art. It's an interesting, it's an interesting idea because there are all these artists and galleries that have these huge pieces of sculpture, paying money to put them in a warehouse somewhere. And so you just say, oh, well, we can put them on our lawn. And they're happy to have somebody store it. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, I think that that approach uh, just, I mean, because if nothing alone, if you don't go to the, the actual physical school as a student, or a faculty member, you could walk the grounds and experience art. Like I don't, there's not that many places that I know of that would welcome that concept. Um, I just wish more universities would be open-minded to to do that because I think just just having that f fact alone. I mean, I think right now um, we're given we're in a pandemic. Um, I understand like certain universities have certain guidelines, um, but I think art is, is, is really important to the community. Um, you know, I, I think it engages conversation, it engages thought. I think, um, yeah, I love nature and I think during the time that we did, uh, TEDx Brooklyn, it was in the fall. And it's magical of just seeing the colors, the trees, and having the backdrop of art on that campus um, was just a, a, a wonderful experience.
Cool. So tell us, um, what's the actual format of a TEDx? Who did you get? Who are some of the people you had uh, presenting and what kinds of things did they talk about? Sure. Um, so when I when I looked at the format, um, the Strategic Alliance with Buckminster Fuller was something that I uh, wanted to have because it wasn't just about creating an event. It was about talking about who this person was, what he represented, and alignment with some of the core values that I had. Um, I, I did not know about Buckminster Fuller, but I, I'm glad I found found him um, because I think it's also very um, relevant to things that are taking place now. Um, once Buckminster Fuller Institute was on board as our fiscal sponsor, I then started to recruit a team on the production side to actually uh, take on some of the logistics things. There was, uh, I was working with an, a couple of folks at Pratt to just handle all the administrative things. Then there was the production crew that I found that was a local filmmaker that um, agreed to um, film the talks and do post-production. And then, um, you know, within that framework... Well, let's just stop at that. Yeah. This film company, uh, did you have to pay them? Where'd you get the money to pay them? Yeah, so um, the the film company um, was, yes, I had to pay them. So once our ticket sales started, um, the revenue from those ticket sales, and it was pretty fast um, because it was the first one being held in Brooklyn and the excitement kind of um, built up and literally to produce this event, it didn't, I mean, I had less than a month, I would say a month and a half to kind of pull this off. Um, so it wasn't a whole lot of time because you got to remember, I spent majority of the year trying to find the perfect home. So, so once the, even when the speakers weren't really announced, I just put the ticket sales up um, with a discount to students and faculty um, and the remaining, um, you know, funds would go towards, um, you know, hiring the film company, um, making sure all of the um, financial elements were squared away, um, having Pratt Food Services provide um, at least a breakfast and lunch for, for our attendees. And so literally within that was then the, the lineup of some of the speakers that we had. So you know, I had reached out to um, the Brooklyn Borough um, President's Office, and um, and at the time was Marty Moskowitz uh, as a, also a strategic partner um, to get their blessings. And from there was creating the the motto or the theme for TEDx, and then from there was also engaging some of the speakers and some of the speakers. Um, are, you know, luminaries in their field and thought um, thought leaders that go back to uh, one example was Bill Katavlis. Uh Another person is Harash Lavani. Another person is Carl Chu. But we also had folks like Barbara Bush, 
um, the daughter. Uh, we also had Fabian Custo, um, and and we had an artist called Swoon. Um, we also had um, Brooklyn's uh, kind of. He was a student, um, grad student from Prague, Sam Cochran, um, and there was a few, a lot of folks. Um, you know, if I had to look back, some of those names. Um, you know, and there's obviously Richard Saul Warman, um, uh, which was also the surprise that I kind of uh, didn't announce to the team until the very end. Um, so I didn't know the connection between um, Richard Saul Warman and um, uh, Dr. Shudi, uh, who was president of Pratt at the time. And so that was a nice surprise. And um, so and, and Kurt Anderson uh, was also another individual so within that um there was also um nate ball and um dr dr prajat singh uh who's doing incredible work um and there were, and then and, and again there was about 13 speakers uh 14 i want to say so all the speakers you mentioned their talks are on youtube uh yeah. is there also a tedx site where People can find these? Absolutely. So the names of all of those folks, if you just Google their name, um, lives on YouTube. And, um, you know, you could see what they were talking about um, 10 years ago um, and what they're so doing. What are, what are uh, could you briefly describe some of the topics that some of them addressed, the kind of, kind of stuff that the audience was experiencing? Sure. Um, I think... You know, some of the things that stood out for me was, um, you know, the work by Dr. Uh, Haresh Lalvani, who um, he himself is a mathematician, morphologist, um, uh, architect, professor, geneticist, I mean, artist. Uh, he's, 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 he's does a lot of things. And um, I didn't know this, um, but he was a, a student of Buckminster Fuller, um, which talk about aligning the stars. Uh, I independently, you know, reached out and had the, the relationship to engage Buckminster Fuller Institute as our fiscal sponsor. And then towards the very end, did I come to find out that Harash Lavani is a student of Buckminster Fuller. And so a lot of his work um, expounded about mapping the universe. And Harash has been doing this uh, for over 40 years. But then there's also things that Dr. Katavlis um, 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 and Carl Shue were talking about that was just mind-blowing. Uh, uh, I, I got to interrupt. It's something amusing. Um, uh, so Katavlis is a good friend of mine. And uh, he's now in a nursing home, and I used to visit regularly, but now call regularly. And he first came to my school when I was a student in 1962. So in 1969, when I started teaching at Pratt, I hired him. And he's, uh, he's kind of a Bucky Fuller type himself, an all-around genius, but... Uh, it's amusing you address him as Dr. 
he doesn't he did he didn't even graduate college. <laughs> uh, uh, he he was a student at Pratt, and then he got drafted in World War II, and so when he got out, he started working as a designer and never finished school, and he has uh, furniture in the Museum of Modern Art. He's featured in major architectural texts. So he's a prominent figure, but I like to use him as an example of uh, you don't need a formal education. <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. So I, in my head, um, when I read about that, you know, there's the title of doctor. For me, um, I kind of, there's certain people who, who don't have the formal education, but they have the expertise and the knowledge and they execute. And so in my own way, I, 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 I give my honorary doctorate to people um, because they've studied something and did something so profound that, you know, in the traditional sense, the, the, acad the, the academic road to get to the PhD uh, wasn't really uh, awarded, but I think their their body of work um, and and there's so many people that I think back to their work um, that you know kind of deserve some of this. And if they don't ever pursue a PhD, but um, you know, and it, and it goes to the theme of what um, you know I selected for um, for our TEDx Brooklyn event and. Um, you know, it was under the, the theme of one moves many. Um, and it's kind of fitting right now, um, what the time that we're in, um, you know, what that means to uh, Brooklyn uh, specifically, uh, but then also the state of New York um, and, and other states around the United States in these very trying times. And I think um, for me, uh, I'm now involved with the Bucky Fuller Institute um, as part of a four week program in their trim lab uh, space camp uh, as a way to kind of think about some of the theories and uh, action steps that Bucky took place. So what are they uh, presenting to you about Bucky Fuller and how is it being applied in your current uh, activity? Yeah. Um, so, most recently, um, you know, I was um, I was working at a Scrum Master, and I the the contract had had ended, and and so within that, I pivoted towards something that I was seeing and reading about, and uh, MIT was doing this uh, hackathon uh, specific to COVID nineteen. Um, I had applied, um, not knowing if I was going to get in and come to realize I did get in, and then I'd have to form a team. Um, so these are all things that I had to do 10 years ago, uh, but without the constraints of a pandemic. Um, and the, the concept was, uh, you know, people from around the world to develop solutions that one focuses on vulnerable population and the other being larger hospital systems. And so I selected a larger hospital system. Sorry, I, I, I picked uh, the vulnerable population and through, um, through a couple of iterations where uh, I'm at a point now to create 
um, or move in the direction of an app that focuses on suicide prevention, mental health, and well-being, um, but at the same time incorporating some of the things that Bucky Fuller uh, had talked about. Um, so it's whole systems thinking, and um, and so literally, I just um, joined the the gathering last night, um, and you know, it was a deep dive with some of the folks that are are part of this uh, journey. So we're going to be on a four week journey to learn about each other's work um, and, um, you know, learn. And there's a couple of workshops. I have to do a lot of there's a lot of homework that I have to do. But um, but at the same time, um, I'm, I'm also looking for opportunities uh, in other competitions um, to kind of take the concept of what I'm doing to build this app. Uh, ideally, it is about uh, saving lives, but then at the same time addressing things like loneliness and well-being to the point where um, do you have the resources that you need, connect with the people that you need to connect with based on your, your actual location um, specific to your zip code. So... Uh... Tell us a little bit how you're envisioning that and what it might do for somebody different from what social media like Facebook would do for them. Sure. I think the distinction comes down to personalization. Um, I think there are certain things that Facebook does well. Uh, and there's a lot of platforms that do those specific things, but they can't do everything. Um, and especially given the mental health uh, crisis that we're in here in the United States, but in other parts of the world, um, the brain is something that even the most uh, well-studied researcher said, you know, we're just scratching the surface. Um, and I think the mind um, is a place where everyone's brain is, is different. Um, your experiences are different. Your memories are different. But then there's this hierarching thing of like what makes us human. Um, and I think what I'm trying to explore is that journey and what that looks like for an individual. And it, you know, it literally starts from the mo moment of um, conception um, and the genetics behind that, what lead to someone to being um, suicidal. But then okay, before, before you go on. Yeah. How would Carl Jung disagree with what you just said? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I had Carl on this interview. <laughs> you, uh, you said begins at the moment of conception. And Carl Jung would say that we are plugged into the history of our culture. Sure. Yeah. So that, um, you know, the past exists in us as archetypes. Yes. Yes. So, Yes. You're, uh, I, I agree. And I think that's, that's the, he's right, but that's what he would say. Yeah, no. And so there's, it's, it's fascinating. And so I agree because there's research that I'm looking at that looks at, um, intergenerational trauma. Um, so you can pull back as far as you can go. Um, so there's systemic things that, uh, the epigenetics, of an individual and what those genes look like in terms of how they've uh, translated, how they mutated, how, how they, and so you could now start to extrapolate 
certain issues, um, for example, chronic illnesses, like, is that based on nature or is that environment? And why are certain groups prone to, you know, whatever diseases or issues? And if you, if you look at this on a historical perspective and pull back the covers, um, you know, some of the research that I've looked at um, goes to a study that was done by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, which was done 30 years ago. Um, but there's also lots of research that's still, uh, that only is just starting to surface, but like anything else, um, connecting the dots of all of these research uh, of one researcher, but then the collaboration of all this research. And I think this is where modern science um, in its truest form has to move forward um, using the collective body of of thought leaders in all of these industries. So I think like people like Koresh, people like Bill Katavlis, people like Barbara Bush. Uh, Barbara Bush, for example, uh, mentioned at that time uh, Global Health Corps, you know, which is sort of like a Peace Corps uh, for people who are interested in, in public health. Um, and so literally uh, that year or like the previous year, she was just beginning to, to, to um, launch that. And I think on some level, um, uh, folks like her who had the vision to think about this 10 years ago. But I also think, you know, some of the things that, um, you know, we're dealing with in terms of, you know, science leading the way is, is, is where I think, you know, here in the United States and in other parts of the, of the world need to get back to. I think the, um, the tinkering the experimenting, the, um, the, you know, how, how do you pull from nature and, uh, and, and, and what, what things do we know? And I think, um, you know, there's certain things that you can learn from a book. I think that's important, but I also think just, just, just literally, I mean, my father was a machinist, right? Like I still have his metal work. Um, he, he used his hands. Uh, he was also an immigrant, but, you know, both my mom and my dad um, worked for the Indian government in their atomic research uh, facility. And so uh, when you look at applications of of science and you look at countries around the world who are leading with science um, in a way that propels society forward. And so, you know, one example was when I was coaching my my children's uh, Lego uh, robotics team, and it was eight middle schoolers who didn't know each other. But I'm like, hey, guys, you have the internet. <laughs> like, you should be able to figure this out, right? And it was surprising to me on a lot of levels um, how much instruction they needed. But then I'm like, wait a second. If I was their age and I said, here is a playground you would know what to do you know and it was it was fascinating on a sociological and um psychological experiment um we, it was my first time as a coach and i think on a lot of levels it goes back to organizing tedx uh brooklyn and even the 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 startup uh that i'm kind of working on is majority of the things is people um i would say 80 percent of anything is people and i think if you find the right people um, the, the possibilities are endless. So, uh, obviously it's going to unfold as it goes, but tell us your preconceptions so far 
about what your app is going to be? Sure. Um, right now, I think the the numbers uh, are 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 scary in a lot of ways, and I think we're. Um, but also looking at the social climate of things that are taking place here in this country, um, a lot of the racial tensions, a lot of the systemic issues that focus on healthcare, supply chains, the things that we do business. I was just, um, um, there's a great CEO, um, Mark Benioff, who is the CEO of Salesforce, who, um, you know, advocates for a lot of things that need to change and he talks about business being the platform of change um and i think the app that i'm working on is an extension of that um in my own way in my own journey um i myself have someone who has struggled with mental health but i also look at it as like well there's all this trauma um that i face but at the same time there's the resilience factor so what i what i what i'm hoping to create is uh, a stress and resilience profile for individuals in real time that could be used by uh, the individuals themselves so that the individual has ownership of their um, of their data uh, their health data and and so they can make informed decisions of you know using the same things that they would you know consider for their credit score or you know hey it's time to go you know uh, do a service on a car or um, all the things that we get these, uh, you know, updates to do. Uh, and then it's time to kind of fine tune that. It's time to watch an I Love Lucy rerun. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think the, 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 the main arc of this is also in, in, in um, you know, there's a lots of movies out there um, and I've seen Netflix, I've seen, other platforms say, hey, we can do this together, right? And I think as mammals, um, there's certain things that we can do alone, but then there's other things, especially in times of crisis. So the threat being corona uh, virus and the threat as it in pushes its will to humans, what do humans do? And this is obviously something that if you look back into history, what did what did people do during these times and um you know the spanish flu of 1918 is sort of the the only thing comparable um but then if you look back to other things like the bubonic plague and polio and just you know just things that just ravaged uh cultures history uh is is an indicator but then the question is we we as a society do we do we do we learn the lessons from history or do we repeat them? Right. So we should work on wrapping up. What else would you like to uh, say to our audience? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, thank you, John, for having me. I think this has been a wonderful experience. I think from the time that you and I met 10 years ago and the things that we talk about, um, I think of you as a, as a thought leader and... Uh, a radical in a lot of ways. And I wish more people would wake up and kind of, you know, talk to people who may not agree with everything that you say, but at the same time, willing to have the discussion. I, and, and it's the spirit of science where you can come together to debate these issues, right? To 
Um, it's not to say who's right or who's wrong, but let's let's go on the journey together. Um, and I think this is where, as a society, uh, true education will prosper because yes, you have your convictions, yes, you have your opinions, but where is it that we can find common ground and agree to the very things that we need to agree on? And I also think for the people who are out on the sidelines that are, they feel marginalized or they don't feel included or they're not smart enough or they're not talented enough. Um, you know, if I'm one data point that you could use, like I, I barely got through college. I sh struggled to get into college. Uh, I almost got left back in the sixth grade because I went from public school to private school and that was my hardest year ever. I didn't, you know, I didn't have tutors or anything like that. Um, my secret to getting through school was memorization. Um, wow. And so uh, it works until it doesn't, but you know, what, what I say is, you know, uh, John asked me a question, how does a kid from the Bronx go to work on the Obama campaign and pitch at MIT now twice? Uh, it's, it's that, it's that arc that makes this country great. Um, it is for all the people who are, uh, thinking about doing something. I say, I say, go do it. Don't wait. Um, you know, every day, is is a miracle and i think uh for future generations i have a i have a 13 year old son and a 11 year old daughter and um hopefully some of the things that they're learning now but at the same time they can ad adapt um over time and i think for folks out there who know um who know people who are younger um i think they they're uh you know, there's things that they know, but they're also seeking guidance. And I think this would be a great time to uh, have that kind of mentorship um, and um, protege kind of model of, of being able to uh, create some sort of apprenticeship program um, and what that looks like. Um, hopefully those discussions take place because I think we, we definitely need it in um, you know, in our society and other societies. So uh, is there a way people get in touch with you or find you, social media, where do they link or friend or why to follow you? Sure. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you could look up my name, Teji Thomas. Uh, the easy way to remember that in spelling is uh, I'm the last four letters in the word strategy. Um, cool. And um, on Twitter... My Twitter handle is supernova the number seven um, because I when I pitched uh, starting my my startup journey was we all come from exploded stars and um, you know the the explosion of of a sun is a supernova so um, so yeah I look forward to connecting with folks that would be interested in. Um, collaborating, or uh, I'd love to hear from the work that they're doing as well. Great. So uh, I'm John LaBelle, your host. This is Visionaries. We're on every Monday at prn.fm at 10 a.m. or whatever time it might be in your part of the world. That's 10 a.m. New York time. And you'll find uh, this and my other shows at 
visionaries.podbean.com. Tenchi, thank you. Thank you very much, John.